Hello, I'm Faisal Pervez, a South Asia analyst here at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. learned over the last century as historians is that a regional and geographic particularism only become more important with globalization, that these are the yin and yang. Welcome to the Stratfor Talks podcast from Stratfor.com. I'm Ben Sheen. It's been 30 years since a group of young demonstrators faced down military tanks in China's Tiananmen Square to protest for democracy. This, of course, was a battle lost. But 2019 also marks another anniversary, one which we commemorate today by discussing the publication of a book without which Stratfor would likely not exist. I'm speaking of Democratic Ideals and Reality by Halford McKinder. It's a book that resonates deeply with Stratfor's VP of Strategic Analysis, Roger Baker, and also with Dr. Jeremy Suri, a scholar of history and published author. Dr. Suri recently stopped by the Stratfor studio to speak with Roger Baker about Mackinder. Here's their conversation. Hi, I'm Roger Baker, Senior Vice President for Strategic Analysis here at Stratfor. I'm here with uh, Dr. Jeremy Suri, a professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs in the Department of History, author of The Impossible Presidency, as well as author of Henry Kissinger and the American Century and several others. And welcome to Stratfor Talks. Well, thank you for having me here. So today, Jeremy, I think we're going to, instead of talking about your books, we're going to dredge up a hundred-year-old book. A better book. A, 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 I won't judge, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll drag up a hundred-year-old book to discuss. And, and this is Sir Halford McKinder's Democratic Ideals yes. and Reality. Yes. And this is a book that – and we'll get into a moment here on, on exactly who McKinder is, but I want to put the book in context. Right. The book is published in 1919, written in 1918, and it really is McKinder's attempt to take an understanding of – of how he has seen geography and culture and society interact, what he saw is what led up to war in Europe, World yes, War One, yes, and to try to give some advice to the emerging League of Nations in how to reshape Europe and how to think about taking what their, as he lays it out, their ideals, their democratic ideals are, understand the baseline structural reality, and somehow come up with something that doesn't lead you into World War Two, which he sort of warns against. Right, I think that I think that's fully accurate. And and the book uh, is important not merely because of his attempt to do that and some of the ideas that are put into this book, but really that in 1942, this is where the book actually takes on its its main life when it's republished in the United States right, right. with an intent to help shape U.S. foreign policy and understanding. And, and intentionally or otherwise, it has now uh, continued to drive the way um, – Sometimes under the under the surface, the way the U.S. views its role in the world and risks and structures yes. in the world. Yes, I, I think one of the big contributions from McKinder 
is to recognize that uh, geography matters, but geography is not determinist, that there's an intersection between the geography of different parts of Europe and Asia, the areas, the main areas he's writing about, and the political and cultural developments in those areas. And his book is a stunning and I think still entirely persuasive critique of Wilsonianism, not the idealism of Wilsonianism, but the universalism of it. Uh, McKinder's a believer in geographical and regional particularism. And I think what we've learned over the last century as historians is that a regional and geographic particularism only become more important with globalization, that these are the yin and yang of international change. And a lot of what you do at Stratfor, I think, is actually to bring that out in really wonderful ways. Well, McKinder has the, the very um, elegant and I think often unappreciated statement very early in the book where he says, um, and I may, may slightly misquote, there is in nature no such thing as equality of opportunity for nations. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so as you note, he lays out the differences of geography. Yes. That, that there are different climates around the world. Right. There are different resources in different places. That is not an inherent um, uh, uh, critique of the individuals in those spaces. No. It simply creates a different playing field in different areas, and that creates unequal opportunity. And this concept of unequal opportunity, he takes to identify as one of the primary drivers of global conflict, one of the drivers of internal national strife within right, countries. Right, right. Um, and even in a particular moment in the book, points out that the tendency of nations to start to over-concentrate opportunity yes. in key cities yes. actually leads to the hollowing out of nations, a classified structure Absolutely. of nations – and problems inside nations that in many ways we're seeing today play out in the Northern Hemisphere. I, I agree 100 percent. And I, I think one of the key elements of this is that he is not a cultural determinist. Uh, many people, I think, misconstrue McKinder as being of a piece with a sort of late 19th century social Darwinist view, which presumes that you know certain light-skinned races are destined to be superior to others. In fact, he's critiquing that. He's saying that the uh, unequal opportunity, as you put it, between regions and societies means that each society has a niche that it's able to fulfill and a historical role it's been able to play. And effective leaders, and I think he's paraphrasing Bismarck here, effective leaders understand the direction of historical change. It's something subterranean, and they're able to nudge and attach themselves to it. And what, what he's calling for, I think, therefore, is just as you said, an understanding of the opportunities different regions have, and not simply exploiting one on the surface seems like an advantage if you have a particular resource in the ground or you have a particular harbor at a particular moment. But thinking about the broader matrix of relationships between societies and the cultural proclivities that come from that and the behavioral attributes that are associated with that. So it's a historical model of change. But what I often tell people is it's a model of slow change. And this is hard, I think, uh, for American leaders and American thinkers in particular because we're committed to a world of fast change. And he's uh, about slow change. He talks about the concept of the going concern. Yes. He talks about in particular in democracy that change is slower. Yes. Um, and because society moves based on the idea that they they effectively create – they're creatures of habit. Yes. They create these habitual patterns. And if you come in and try to change that, that river, that flow, you're effectively trying to change the structure of the banks of the river whilst sitting in a raft in the middle of the river – and trying to move it. And you are being moved by the river as much as you are able and often even more than you are able to actually change it. Precisely. Uh, his book on India, which I know you know well, uh, is all about this, right? Uh, he's not uh, necessarily saying that the British should leave India, but he's saying they should recognize that they're not ruling India. 
as much as India is ruling them. And any success in the British Empire, he writes, is about the understanding of that framework. Uh, it's a very different way of thinking about international power from the vernacular of the 20th century, which very much grows out of the end of World War I and this moment that he's writing in. So I think in some ways, his writing, especially the Democratic Ideals book of 1919, is not just uh, an intellectual exploration. It's a primary document on the moment, on the debates that uh, thinkers, serious thinkers, are going through and struggling with in 1919, which, as you said, Roger, I think are echoed today. I think we're in a very similar space as we think about the future of Asia and we think about the different countries in that region and the future of the Middle East and what role, if any, the United States can play, what role historically China has played. Uh, it's, it's interesting how, and I, how the echoes and reverberations are, are with us today. Well, there's many both in those grand themes that come across that remain applicable, I think, far beyond the particular moment in which he's writing and, and somehow uh, seem to actually come into play much stronger at later moments. But in some of the tactical themes he addresses, he talks about this concept, which I guess in modern parlance would be considered rude, but he talks about the half-educated. Yes, yes. Um, and he says that that societies are half-educated because we have overcome the concept of of baseline literacy. But what we haven't yet done is effectively taught people how to withhold judgment on information they hear and then test that information before they make a judgment. And he says that makes them susceptible to propaganda. Of course. And and when we look around today at the way in which media and information flows have been adapted and adjusted through technology and and micro-sized to particular viewpoints mm -hmm. where it no longer requires of the individual to to even think or assess. Right. Um, it does lead into what he warns about, which is this makes you so susceptible to propaganda that, that you forget to think and you start to fracture and fragment um, societies. This is a brilliant point because the other uh, real contextual uh, issue for him in 1919 is, of course, the Russian Revolution. And Bolshevism is a break from uh, the Victorian model in many, many obvious ideological ways, but particularly in this stylistic and functional way that you just described. Uh, for Bolsheviks, even more than for Marx, it doesn't matter how you get to the truth as long as you get to the truth they have. And their truth is a faith truth. It's not an empirical truth. And what the Bolsheviks are doing um, is using propaganda in this new way. They don't have the technology and the mechanisms that we have of the 21st century. Uh, but you can trace a long origin from the uh, social media propaganda of today back to this moment. The notion that politics, law, and all discourse are simply the instrumentation of getting to a particular preconceived end runs against everything in democratic theory in the 19th century. And I think what Mackinder is, is fearful of, in a way that Orwell is fearful uh, a generation later, is, is that the tools of discourse, the tools of analysis are being used by the half-educated who can speak the language to actually undermine the very purposes of the language. So we're, be, we're creating a different kind of babble out of this. And, and I think it's really dangerous, right? Uh, in some ways, being a little educated is really, really a problem because you think you know a lot more than you know. And you have an instrumentation to pretend you know more and to try to convince other people. It's sort of like you'd, you'd rather go to either a very well-trained doctor or someone who's not a medical doctor at all. The worst would be someone in between who knows how to do just a little bit, enough to really, really harm you, right? Uh, and I think that's what he's writing about. I think that's how he sees uh, Lenin. And, and it should be said that the – I would call them the liberals in a British sense, not American liberals, 
These are 19th century Gladstonians, right? Their vision of the world in the early 20th century is deeply influenced by this particular fear. And, and as I've tried to show elsewhere, it finds its way into George Kennan's thinking. It finds its way into Henry Kissinger's thinking. And if there is an American tradition of geopolitics, it doesn't really come from the deep reading of McKinder we wish uh, everyone would have. But it does come from this sense that uh, in a democratic polity, you still need people who are experts and have thought these things, as you said, Roger, through deeply, rather than following these surface propagandized um, false lessons. In Democratic Ideals and Reality, Halford McKinder focuses on the post-World War I era and discusses the international need to truly understand the intricacies of how geography, society and politics intertwine. This is Stratford's mission to fully understand this and unpack it in a simple, digestible way. If you would like to learn more about how Stratford can help you with analytic tools to both visualize and also anticipate the areas in the world where your interests and operations are at the greatest risk, be sure to visit us at stratford.com slash enterprise. And this concept of what is the modern democratic ideal and how does that play out seems to be something that that McKinder maybe not struggles with, but he really tries to pick apart yes. and tries to dig down yes. into. Where, yes. where, where he, he breaks it apart and he starts talking about things like, look, um, that uh, uh, democracy refuses to think strategically right. unless and until compelled to do so by right. basically a crisis. Right. That democracy is really about the the common man, and the common man doesn't think in these grand strategic terms. And that's okay because that's not only the weakness of democracy, yes. but it's the strength of democracy. Correct. Correct. This is actually where I think uh, Mackinder and Alfred Thayer Mahan really agree. I mean, they both have this view that the new societies, particularly the United States, need to develop this coterie of individuals who are trained and experienced and, and have the learning necessary to do this. And for Mahan, it's not – Ralph Ruther Mahan, it's not the traditional British uh, Oxbridge-trained individual. It's not reading Greek. Um, it's actually understanding some of the new science of geography. And I think what's interesting in comparing those two is that the United States tends to place more emphasis early on on sea power. Uh, and there are lots of reasons that are obvious for that. Uh, but as you go over time, McKinder, who's writing primarily about land, you see, in fact, the overlap with sea. And that, to me, is what makes McKinder so interesting, that you could be writing in this landed geographical way, but yet it also ends up explaining a lot about how the non-landed use of power uh, operates in the 20th century. Well, and McKinder, if we if we want to go to the, the narrow heartland concept, yes. which, of course, runs through its evolutions, it comes out, he, he first publishes and, and speaks on this in around 1904. Hmm. Hmm. He, he revises it in 1919. He then does a final hit against it in 1943. Right. In American, right. in America again. This right. is that, that transition of McKinder Precisely. from a British to an American um, embrace. Right. The uh, Greeks to the Romans. Yes, as it, as it were. Um, but he talks about he moves his heartland, he moves these things. But basically what he says is, look, if you look at Asia and Europe and Africa as a combined entity uh, or, or an ability to move combined through land routes rather than maritime routes, that there's a continuity Absolutely. of land routes across those three spaces, that provides you not only with a tremendous amount of natural resources, but with a tremendous amount of manpower. And, yeah. and interestingly, McKinder is the, 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 the individual who 
um, in around 1904, 1905, had actually coined the term manpower as a measure of national strength. Oh, I didn't know that, really. So, so McKinder is the one who drives this idea of manpower rather than just accumulated wealth. Right. And then he repeats that phrase right. in Democratic Ideals of right. Reality, but he came up with the, the popularizing that, right. that phrase and right. that terminology. And he says – and this is the – I mean this is the super thesis of the heartland, but it basically says if you can combine all of those and add in modern transportation and communication technology, which wasn't there necessarily strong in the past – you can create a base of operations that is insular from the maritime world yep, but has the ability to push out right. and attack the maritime world. And Mackinder, living on an island in a maritime nation that, that controlled the world at the time primarily through minor touch points along coasts, yeah. right, is a person who sees in this maritime land dichotomy all the time. Right. And, and, and he lays out this is the thing. Now, when we come to modern day, right – um, in some ways, whether it's intended or not, what China is doing with Belt and Road yes. is Mackinder's worst nightmare. Yes. It is the the economic and infrastructure linking of the entire Eurasian space, of the yes. world island, as he yes. calls this, yes. into a potential single entity that reduces friction within the entity but then prepares uh, – allows it to be able to push out against the maritime island Absol- powers. Absolutely. I mean it, 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 the early 20th century version of this is Russia and the 21st century version of this is China. And it's worth underlining how radical this idea is in the early 20th century for a British uh, scholar to be making this claim, right? Because Britain's entire power structure is built around the opposite. It's built around sea lanes, uh, and it's built around going around and avoiding these areas. Why? Because these areas, as McKinder points out, are very difficult to rule from the outside, and they are very difficult to penetrate, right? And what happens is what happened to the British time and again in Afghanistan, you get sucked in, and what's happened to the United States to some extent. So he is saying, just as you put it, Roger, that in fact this, this core area, right, this core area has inherent power in it because of the people and because of its placement relative to the rest of the world. It's the home base, right, the heartland as such. And that over time, one can push out from it easier than one can push into it. And and I think that's exactly Chinese strategy right now. Uh, and I think it's actually, and many others have written about this who know a lot more about Chinese history than I do, uh, this has long been Chinese strategy. Chinese realism is McKinder without the democratic ideals, right? It's the sense that we are the middle kingdom, right? Everything is around us. And the barbarians can come and they can nip at our coastline and stuff. But over time, we will grow out from the center. And uh, I think it's it's a tried and true strategy. It's very difficult for external powers to intervene in heartland uh, areas. There, there are a number of historians who have written about this. This has been the failing of every empire, right? It's not just Napoleon, right? Think of Tamerlane, right? The great uh, Middle Eastern empires, right? They were never able to get up onto and through the heartland. And uh, that's our challenge in the 21st century. Well, and this leads to that at times derided and at times embraced concept of balance of power. Yes. The only way to counter the, the the unity of the heartland, at least in this thesis, is that you have to create a way that that allows differences to exist but provides relative equality of opportunity. This is McKinder's big challenge yeah, at this absolutely. point. He says, absolutely. how do you provide enough opportunity for at least groups of nations that they – are sufficient to have equality of opportunity of development paths yes. and that they don't that elements of them don't become uh, 
grow too fast too quickly and become, quote, hungry. Yes. Yes. And, and I think what he's concerned about is that even though there is a tradition of the balance of power, uh, the British have not really played that game fully because they've always pursued their own empire. So they sort of have a balance of power on the European continent and then they pursue their empire elsewhere. Uh, Michael Howard has famously written that the British really don't make a continental commitment a land commitment until the early 20th century. They're not a land power. And and he's trying to educate the British on that and, of course, educate the Americans. And there's another point to this which is really important and runs against the way Americans, I think, still think about this, which is that democratic ideals require a balance of power. And his critique of Wilsonianism and, to some extent, what he sees of FDR in the early part of World War II and the notion of unconditional surrender, right, is that you are actually pursuing a vision that runs against a balance of power politics, which will get you stuck in and defeated in the heartland. Yeah, and he says basically it's going – your ideals will put you back into that cycle of, cycle of pain, cycle Pre- of destruction. Precisely. And, and he says to, to maintain this, you have to have – there has to be power. Yes. But you have to not allow any power to be strong enough to be dominant. Right, including so you, yourself. Right, including them, um, including I think he's he, he's making a hint at, at – the emergence of a United States, right, which right. has intervened at that point, the, the, that the that a League of Nations to be effective can't have a hegemon, right? Because then it's no longer a league. Right. Um, but that you also have to recognize these these strange differences in places, um, and find a way to balance those hungers, right, and opportunities. And I think he he then throughout his idea of. of democratic ideals and realities, trying to bring people back to this idea that you got to think of them both. And he says, in the end, remember that the Polit part of geopolitics, mm-hmm. the Polit, mm-hmm. right, um, is the people. Yes. It's not merely the government. Right. It's the people. And people are societies, and societies are based on local communities. Yes. And one of the weaknesses of the modern world, the over-specialization, the, the, the differentiation in, in, in regional supply chains and things that, things that we today see extreme on that yep. extreme scale— yeah. Those undermine the cohesion of locality. Yes, and and it's interesting to me that he ends the book with a with a discourse on the idea of reestablishing neighborliness. Yes. yes, as what saves the world. Mister Rogers saves yeah. the world. Yes, right? yes, yes. If you think in terms of neighborliness, it breaks down that thought in the in terms of only class relations. Right. Um, it puts you back in connection with the people in your local geography in different classes, in different um, uh, standings in life, in different ethnic, sectarian backgrounds, yes, whatever. Yes. And and he, say, he argues – and I think he's getting a little idealistic here. But he argues, look, if we really want to do this, if you think in local – Yes, and this is different than 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 think global, act local. Right. This is think local, act local. It's almost a Machiavellian idea yes. that yeah. if you think about your local, local, local interests, ultimately it will help to create a a relative balance and peace and opportunity in in multiple places. I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I I think of it as a mosaic, right? And and he doesn't see the world as flat. But he doesn't see the world as filled with these isolated mountaintops either. It's a mosaic of different kinds of places. And those mosaics have rich colors that have come from the soil and come from the experience of century after century. And just as you said, Roger, one has to respect and understand one's own spot in the mosaic and the other spots around you. And so there is the opportunity, and this is why he's interested in international institutions like the League and like the United Nations, because there's an opportunity to build collective action. And I think a word that we don't use enough today is collective security, right, which is very different from alliance, very different from empire, 
right? And collective security, that's the world he's in. Again, this is 19th century liberalism at its best, right? Each community has the right and actually prospers in its own way. And we build structures that don't flatten that, but actually provide for collective cooperation. And, and, and I think if I were pushed to really define what democracy is for Mackinder, it's just that, right? It's not a statement of rights, right? But it's a set of behaviors, um, and, and I think he's profoundly worried, uh, as I think all of us are, that power has an inverse relationship to this, that there's a way in which power draws one to try to find universalism and to brush across the mosaic. Uh, and uh, that's, that's, that's the evolving challenge. So I think as we, as we wrap up here, there, there's, there's the clunky interpretation of Mackinder, which is, China is Mackinder's nightmare. Mm. They're building the heartland, and they're going to take over the world. Right. No, that's not right. Um, and and well, there is uh, certainly elements of that that have to be recognized. There's that, but I think that that when we think about Mackinder, there's a much greater layer to this. There's these ideas of idealism. There's these ideas of of community. There's ideas of opportunity. There's a recognition that that if even if every individual has the potential. The place has a has something that shapes them, and it has over time that history flows through. Precisely. Geography has an influence. Precisely, precisely, and 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 this I think is the profound insight that George Kennan takes from Mackinder that we would do well to take for today, which is that these heartland, these land communities have an internal dynamic to them that we cannot change, but that is also larger than the current regime. I mean, Kennan's insight from Mackinder. Uh, he read Mackinder on these transatlantic prop planes he was going on. Can you imagine reading on those? Uh, his insight from Mackinder was that Russia was not communism. Communism was also an external force that had come in. The same is true for China, right? And so the best we can do and the wisest we can do is not to try to throw ourselves into that heartland, but as you said, Roger, to build a balance of power around it, what we used to call containment. Right? and allow the regime and incentivize and encourage the regime to change in certain ways and to try to reinforce where we can the attributes and the behaviors, free markets and things of that sort, that we see as beneficial to ourselves and them. But we can overstep and get ourselves into a lot of trouble or we can understate the reality. China is going to pursue, it seems to me, by, by virtue of being China, it's going to pursue a Middle Kingdom strategy. And we need to try to work to contain and, and nudge it, but don't pretend that we can actually transform it. Well, I think this is a fascinating conversation. We could probably go on another three or four hours At or least. More. At least. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I do encourage people to, to pick up a copy of this. Even if it's a 100-year-old book, there are some really interesting concepts. It's, it's democratic ideals and reality. Absolutely. Um, and it's very readable. I, I assign it to students, as, as you know, Roger, and it's, it's very readable. Uh, so it's old, but it's also new. Yep. Well, Jeremy, thank you for coming uh, in. This has pleasure. been great. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on, Roger. Jeremy Suri is a professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, I'm Roger Baker. Thank you for listening to this Stratfor podcast. Well, that's all the time there is for today's podcast. But there's plenty more reading material online, and we'll make sure to include details on how to purchase Mackinder's book, Democratic Ideals and Reality, in the show notes. And we'll also add some links to Stratfor Analysis and Dr. Jeremy Suri's writing. 
If you have a question about this podcast, or even if you have an idea for the next one, we'd love to hear it. And you can drop us an email at podcast at stratfor.com. And please take a moment to leave a review on the podcast page on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen. We really do appreciate your feedback. And for more geopolitical intelligence, links, and fun facts about what goes into forecasting world events, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Stratfall. Thanks again for listening. 